Hey everybody, it's Dustin from the HP Podcast. And this is Ben. We're just coming here to tell you about our show. Well, the HP Podcast. The HP Podcast is a weekly video game podcast from handsomefandom.com that's also part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. And Ben, it's a little hard to describe our show because it's a little bit of everything. We get into a lot of shenanigans. We also talk about some news. We have some pretty serious topics sometimes, but sometimes uh, our friend Brandon takes a shirt off and uh, just does the show that way. So you should definitely check it out. I think you got stuck to the seat last time. It's possible. So that was that was a time. Yeah. So anyway, check out our show. We would love that. The HP podcast. Welcome to the Laugh and Times of Video Games, a documentary and narrative style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 23, The Fog of War. In war, no information is complete, no intelligence absolute, no view of the enemy unobstructed. There's no such thing as perfect knowledge. It is a realm of uncertainty where decisions are made on flawed and often outdated data, as though you're looking through a fog. Hence the term, the fog of war. It's a military phrase with origins in the musings of a 19th century Prussian general called Karl von Clausewitz. And it's a phrase that's since found its way into video game lexicon and video game design as I'll be exploring in this story. No war occurs without this so-called fog shroud around it. So of course it follows then that any attempt to simulate war would model either the fog of war or its effects on both sides. And indeed, decades before we had a video game industry, tabletop war games had begun to grapple with the fog of war problem. Some games offered ways for players to hide their troop placements from opponents. In Stratego, for instance, each player has 40 pieces with rank varying from 1 to 9, and these ranks are displayed only on one side of the piece, the side that's facing you, its owner. So your opponent only knows a piece's rank once they've encountered it in battle. Other games, known as block war games, adopted a similar solution by putting the numbers and pictures on different sides of wooden blocks, while more elaborate approaches would involve using duplicate boards separated by a screen of some kind. That way each player will know only as much about their opponent's forces as their opponent has revealed to them up to that point. So if you think of the game of Battleship, but with much more complex rules and movesets, then you'll be pretty much there. But most tabletop war games would simply leave the fog of war out entirely, preferring instead to focus on the aspects of warfare that translated better to a game played by a group of people seated around a table. Then computers came along, and suddenly game makers had the perfect vessel for simulating the fog of war, especially when they pit players against the computer or against other players connected over a network. Because now, with the computer as the referee or timekeeper or dungeon master or whatever, there was an easy way to conceal information from a player. And almost immediately, at the dawn of the computer age, a Caltech student called Walter Bright created Empire on a PDP-10 minicomputer. As an aside, here's a fun bit of trivia about Empire that will be of little surprise to long-time listeners of the show. 
For many months in the late 1970s, Empire was also known as Test. So named in order to circumvent restrictions on the amount of time students could spend playing games, which was a pretty common refrain in university labs at the time. Anyway, Empire defined the basic concept of Fog of War for video games, as we know it today. Which is that at the beginning of play, you can see only the area immediately surrounding whichever characters and buildings you control. Everything else is blacked out. So if you think of the Civilization series and just imagine much simpler graphics, you'd be pretty close to how Empire looked. You had a randomly generated map of the world, drawn in squares on a grid. And as you built units, you could explore this world. And as you do so, you'd push back the blackness to reveal the map. And once you had visibility of something, you'd see it permanently. So the fog of war only really applied as an initial state to represent the unknown territory on a map. Now, Empire only tells part of the story of what we consider the fog of war today. For the other part, we need to look a bit further afield. Starting with 1980 Atari 2600 game Adventure. This is the famous game by Warren Robinette with the easter egg room that inspired Ready Player One. Adventure was essentially a game of maze exploration. And to make that experience more interesting, Warren leveraged a video prioritization programming trick in the Atari's hardware design. He put an object between the foreground and the background, both of which had been set to the same color, grey. And his trick created a large orange square around the player's also square avatar in the rooms that had designed to be dark. Now, I phrase it that way because you couldn't really tell in adventure whether a room was meant to be dark or not. You couldn't really tell for sure anything. But suffice to say, the idea was to replicate the experience of walking around with a lamp in a text adventure game. And so in a dark room, you'd see only your avatar in that square of what he called radiance, plus any other objects on the screen. And everything else would be great, thereby hiding your path. Now, you might be wondering, what has this got to do with the fog of war? Adventure is not a war game. How can it have a fog of war? Well, if we think about Fog of War as a game mechanic, and not just an analogy for limited information in the theatre of war, then there's really no reason why it should be the sole dominion of the war game. Uncertainty in games is interesting. It leads to interesting decisions. It makes people take more risks. It forces them to think, and it entices them to explore. And as such, I'd argue that one of the most influential uses of the Fog of War mechanic also came from around this time I've just been talking about, the late 1970s and early 80s, in Rogue, the game that birthed the roguelike, a popular genre that's managed to hybridize its way into every other genre, like some kind of super virus. Rogue was designed to give you an experience like what its creators Michael Toy and Glenn Wickman had felt when they played the mainframe text-based game Colossal Cave Adventure for the first time. They wanted players to encounter mystery and danger on every playthrough, each time wandering through a unique subterranean maze. And so their ASCII graphics game Rogue would, much like Empire, 
Begin with a mostly black screen and fill in the details as you explored. Similarly with Beneath Apple Manor, a 1978 Apple II roguelike that predated Rogue, and so is kinda weird to be calling a roguelike. And in Gamma Quest 2, an unreleased roguelike game that was also developed before Rogue, and that would later be released as sort of Fargo for the Commodore VIC-20 personal computer. Here, developer Jeff McCord even used the phrase Fog of War to describe the way his randomly generated levels would reveal themselves inch by inch as players explored them. This kind of exploration would become a touchstone of this genre that we now call roguelike, an integral part of the DNA of influential games like NetHack and Moria and Ancient Domains of Mystery where discovery and exploration are cardinal elements inseparable from the genre's fierce commitment to providing tension and excitement every time you play. In 1984 PC game Carrier Force, this idea of tension then took center stage. Now Carrier Force has nothing to do with roguelikes. Carrier Force was a simulation of World War II carrier battles, which in reality were rife with misinformation and uncertainty as rival powers struggled for control of the Pacific, searching for an edge over the enemy through barely legible radar data and the observations of pilots. Developer Gary Grigsby called his carrier warfare game about as foggy a game as you can get. For it involved sending planes out in search of enemy targets, which they may or may not see, depending on the weather conditions, as well as their distance from home and no small measure of random chance. And so you could never quite know for sure if you were about to get hit by an enemy raid from a ship that you had failed to spot, or if you or your enemy would even succeed in finding a single target during an attempted raid. And thanks to games like this, before long the computer wargaming community was abuzz with discussion about something they called limited intelligence. Which was really just another phrase for this fog of war thing, only it's less poetic. It had begun to pop up everywhere, and not everyone was on board with the idea. Fog of war is too easily used as a design crutch, warned computer gaming world writer Jay Salovo in the magazine's September 1985 issue. He argued that too many games had employed so-called limited intelligence unrealistically with faulty or incomplete rules and arbitrary choices made as to what information would be hidden from players. Come 1988 and the debate still raged on as players, developers and critics alike all grappled with the nuances of Fog of War in an entertainment product. The computer gaming world again placed itself as arbiter of discussion by publishing a round-robin series of letters from top designers one of whom, a fellow named Ed Beaver, made the insightful observation that the danger in war comes more often not from what you don't see, but what you think you see, or what you want to see. And that, therefore, the fog of war is ultimately a mental fog. It's a psychological thing in the head of the commander, who must sift through huge amounts of information, some of it's accurate, some not, and some relevant, some not in order to determine, in short order, what the appropriate course of action is. But still the fog of war in most games remained an arbitrary limiting of information, 
typically in the form of a literal fog. Either a fog that surrounds you, always encircling you as you move about the world, as in adventure. Or a fog that begins around you, but lifts and fades away as you move, never to reclaim its lost territory. This basic principle wasn't about to change, other than in a few interesting outliers that I'll touch on shortly. But it was set for an overhaul, courtesy of an emerging star in games development, Blizzard Entertainment. They followed the Fog of War convention for their fantasy-styled riff on the new real-time strategy genre with Warcraft in 1994. Just a black fog that would fade away as you explore. But they then introduced the clever twist for the sequel, Warcraft 2, the following year. A two-tiered system that would combine both of these implementations into one. An opaque black fog that pulls back permanently as you explore outwards, and a semi-transparent grey folk that expands and contracts around your units as they move, hiding in its depths the locations of enemy units and buildings, but not the lay of the land, not the terrain on which they stand. I recently asked Warcraft 1 and 2 programmer and designer Patrick Wyatt how the team came up with this idea. Well, it was one of those things where having done Warcraft 1 and like thinking about the things we wanted to do to improve it, one of the things that really made sense was that Fog of War was cool the way it was implemented, but it didn't really, it wasn't really what you would consider true Fog of War, right? The thing that's fascinating is you read about old battles, like, you know, there's a lot of documentation around U.S. Civil War battles where generals made mistakes because they didn't know what the enemy was doing. And so troops arrived early or late to battle and that made all the difference in war. And so the idea of, you know, knowing the terrain, but not knowing the disposition of the enemy units would be more similar to what a general would face in a real situation. And so it's like, well, how can we mimic that? And that's where the idea of just, well, why don't we just fill in the map again behind players? And, you know, if you don't have something to observe it, how do you know what's happening? Because Warcraft 1 and all the other games of its era uh, just sort of assume you've got this godlike view of everything that's going on you know, a conceit of video games. And so what can we do to fix that? And so it was actually a very simple fix, which is just, we had a two-level map and it was, have I visited this this uh, area before? Okay, that's the blackness. And the other is, do I have a unit that's nearby to see this area right now? And that's the grayness. And you just put the black and the gray together uh, in the same way that, you know, the there are other things on the on the map that use the same technology for deciding what the shape should look like. You know, when you cut down a tree, the other trees around it adjust to make it look pretty. And if you move around in the fog of war, you just calculate the adjacency matrix for the fog and draw it so that it looks, you know, pretty. We'll continue with this exploration of the history, evolution, and significance of the fog of war in games right after this short break. I recently realized that while I often ask you to leave a review or a rating of my show, it's actually not that easy a thing to do. You've got to know where to go, how to get there, and that requires some extra effort. So from now on, I'm going to make it much easier. I've got a webpage you can go to that will give you a simple, specific instruction and a direct link for doing ratings and reviews. So if you could go to ratethispodcast.com slash LTVG and follow the instructions, that would be a huge help. You can do it right now while you're listening. And you'll be helping me get this show in front of more new listeners. 
That's ratethispodcast.com slash L-T-V-G. Hey everyone, this is Rob and Jay from the Classic Gaming Podcast. We uh, play and talk about old school video games on our podcast. I know you probably couldn't have guessed that from the name of it, but uh, as for me, I tend to prefer the old, the good old point-and-click adventure game genre. I also like strategy games. I play a lot of a wide variety of stuff. Uh, uh, as for Jay? Yeah, I'm really partial to RPGs and RTSs, so things like Final Fantasy Tactics and Chrono Trigger to that of StarCraft or Age of Empires. Um, generally at the podcast, we try to stay on topic, but we usually end up going off on super, super far tangents. Give us a listen over at the HP Video Game Podcast Network. You can also find us at ClassicGamingPodcast.com, and uh, we hope you check us out. All right, now let's get back to the show. When we left off, former Blizzard lead programmer Patrick Wyatt had just explained how Warcraft 2 got its two-tiered fog of war system from the development team thinking about how, during the US Civil War, many battles were decided not by strength of forces or tactics or the terrain that both sides knew so well, but by generals being unable to see the enemy's movements and consequently mistiming their operations. So reinforcements arrived at the wrong time. And this sounded to the team at Blizzard like a great idea for something to put in a strategy game. Work complete. The Warcraft 2 Fog of War was a simple idea with huge ramifications. This two-tiered Fog of War system quickly became a standard, not only of the real-time strategy genre, which of course absorbed this implementation into its conventions, but also a standard of turn-based strategy. And before long, in role-playing games, like Baldur's Gate and the like. Get out of here, you owe us money! Bear over here! The fog of war went mainstream, so to speak. It became normal. And most often of all, it was implemented in this Warcraft 2-style two-tier system. Which doesn't surprise me at all, because it's a really effective mechanic. A way to reward exploration through the joy of discovery without taking away any tension as you do so. And in fact it could add to the tension and suspense and the depth of experience. As this sort of fog of war could be played with as a strategic element. Here's Pat Wyatt again. Well it was another aspect where uh, you've got more capabilities that matter. So like the, the, the visibility range of units is now an important criteria. So just by increasing the visibility range of a unit, you've actually created a more powerful unit compared to just bumping its other stats. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. But you know, because Fog of War is something that all players share, um, it doesn't disproportionately affect one versus another. A lot of it is making sure that you have a unit on each side that fulfills some of the same functions. Right? Like uh, a scouting function is really important because you, if you don't have a scouting unit, then you're not going to be able to identify what the enemy is doing and you're going to be in an information deficit and probably lose. And so, especially when we did StarCraft, we have a lot of different ways that the different races can perceive the map. You know, just going and dropping a lurker somewhere gives you visibility into the map. You might not, instead of putting it in a, um, a place where the enemy troops are likely to pass over, you might put it on a path where it's unlikely to be encountered, but you can see the enemy flying units fly over. And so you have some insight that the enemy is sending stuff your way. So the two-tiered fog of war adds a huge amount of strategic thinking and possibility space to the experience. 
But what's really surprising is that a fog of war system like this didn't happen sooner. I mean, the technology to do it had been there well before Warcraft 2 came along. Even elder races get tired of waiting. Yeah, we had the capability. You know, again, it could have been done in Warcraft 1 if we'd thought of it, uh, because it wasn't super complicated. But of course, part of it was just even getting the game working in the first place was such a huge challenge, like making the first multiplayer real-time strategy game. We spent a lot of time... I mean, like I, I personally spent a lot of time just fixing bugs about how the synchronization worked across remote computers because there was no literature on it. Uh, there were no tools to, to do anything about it. When problems occurred, it was like, yeah, the games are playing differently on two computers. <laughs> now what? Like, how do, we, how do we even determine that they're playing differently on different computers? We don't even know. It's only when players tell us that there's a problem that we can identify that. I've got the brain. Uh-uh. And so we had to build, and I say, I keep saying we, but like, I mean, I wrote the whole network system for that game and I had to figure out all these problems. Like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> uh-huh. So it's easy to understand why we didn't have enough time to do some of the more advanced systems like we did in Warcraft 2 when we had solved a lot of those problems and had more time to think about uh, core gameplay elements. This way, no, that way. Innovation is tough, in other words, and developers have to pick their battles. Sometimes they have to go with the status quo on an idea. An idea that's ripe for improvement. Simply because they're too busy figuring out how to just get the game to work. They're too occupied with solving problems to innovate or invent. That said, some developers did manage to come up with intriguing new ideas for the Fog of War. Ideas that didn't quite catch on so broadly. In 1994 PC game Carriers at War 2, you wouldn't know the true effectiveness of your strikes on the enemy's forces until either a ship sinks or the scenario ends, as your pilots would return from missions with exaggerated reports of their success, as happened frequently in the Second World War. In Harpoon 2, meanwhile, art imitated life much more sadly, with the Fog of War implementation that offered such a rapidity of change in the situation that you could inadvertently target and kill innocent bystanders. As happened, tragically, in the real world, just days before I recorded this episode. In the close combat and combat mission games, your soldiers had minds of their own, which meant not only that their performance and decisions on the battlefield were affected by their physical and mental and weapon condition, but also that they wouldn't necessarily see an enemy, even if they're plainly visible to you. And then also, in more recent memory, Total War Shogun 2 adopted a really nice aesthetic adjustment to the standard format by replacing that ominous black fog with a stylized parchment look, which has since been adopted by the Civilization series as well. But still, facelifts aside, the Warcraft 2 system is the standard one the 25-year-old refinement on a more than 40-year-old mechanic is still going strong today. Uh And that really doesn't surprise me, because I think that for most games, the fog of war is a means to an end. And it always has been thus. There has never been a need outside the hardcore wargaming community to make it any more complex. Never a sound reason to veer it into greater degrees of realism. The fog of war in games is rarely about realism, or about having an accurate simulation of warfare. If it adds drama to those aspects, then that's a nice bonus, but it's not the point. 
What it's really about is excitement and drama. Concealment is intriguing. Intrigue is compelling. And what are games but a collection of stories and sounds and graphics wrapped around a system of rules and possibilities for you to play with? So Fog of War is a way to add tension and excitement, or friction if you like, to incentivize a player to explore a map, a skill tree, a story, a choice. And most games do this in a similar fashion, not out of laziness or unoriginality, but because it works. Because it serves as a compelling symbol of concealment. Here be dragons, as they used to write in the uncharted parts of the world map. This is for you to explore and discover and conquer. Because few ideas are as powerful as the unknown. The Life and Times of Video Games is created entirely by me, Richard Moss. Writing, editing, production, and even music and sound design, except for the bits that I pull from old games. I'm supported by my subscribers on Patreon, without whom I never would have been able to make it this far, and who are giving me hope that I could one day turn the show into my job. So an extra special thanks to those of you who've donated money through PayPal and Patreon. And a shout out, as always, to my producer-level backers. Vivek Mohan, Simon Moss, Eric Zocker, Seth Robinson, Wade Trigaskis. Thanks, guys. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show on an ongoing basis for ad-free episodes and bonus content and some other cool stuff, head to patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. One word. All lowercase. Or... Just go to lifeandtimes.games slash donate and you'll get all the information for that and for donating through PayPal and Breaker. And if you don't have the money to spare, you can still help me out by telling other people about the show. Recommend it on podcasting communities like Podchaser and Podacy. Share it on Reddit and Hacker News and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the other social networks and news sites. Email it to your friends and family play it for your colleagues, whatever you like. The more people who listen, the better the chance that I can keep making this thing long-term. Just the same as the more people who donate. And also, the more people who leave a review. And remember, you can now head to ratethispodcast.com slash LTVG for instructions and a direct link to write a review. And as always... You can find past episodes, where to listen links, donation info, partial transcripts, and anything else that might be related at the website lifeandtimes.games. Until next time, my name is Richard Moss, and this was The Life and Times of Video Games. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya. Job's done. Hey everyone, this is Rob and Jay from the Classic Gaming Podcast. We uh, play and talk about old school video games on our podcast. I know you probably couldn't have guessed that from the name of it, but uh, as for me, I tend to prefer the old, the good old point-and-click adventure game genre. I also like strategy games. I play a lot of a wide variety of stuff. Uh, 
Uh, as for Jay? Yeah, I'm really partial to RPGs and RTSs, so things like Final Fantasy Tactics and Chrono Trigger to that of StarCraft or Age of Empires. Um, generally at the podcast, we try to stay on topic, but we usually end up going off on super, super far tangents. Give us a listen over at the HP Video Game Podcast Network. You can also find us at ClassicGamingPodcast.com, and uh, we hope you check us out.